Good day to you. Welcome to Classroom Conversations, the platform for Georgia's teachers, a place for you to share and learn. This podcast series, now in its third season, yay, is presented by the Georgia Department of Education in partnership with Georgia Public Broadcasting. I'm Ashley Mingwasser, your host, and I'm chumming with some prominent classroom figures to discuss Georgia historical figures and utilizing primary sources in inquiry-based learning. Who is credited with the expression, don't make me repeat myself? Moms, maybe, yeah, but history. Today and every day should be about celebrating a clean slate, history in the making. But certain people are always bringing up the past. History teachers make a living of it, but that's a good thing. Our first guest, Lisa Rogers, has been described as a social studies rock star. Lisa is a gifted teacher at Smyrna Elementary School in Cobb County. And joining her, Rick Parker. Rick is a longtime middle school teacher, now in his first year teaching at Campbell High School in Cobb County. Lisa and Rick teach for the same school system, a parking lot apart. Welcome to the podcast, Lisa and Rick. Thank you. Glad so to happy be here. to be here. How are you two today? Wonderful. Doing I'm great. so excited. Did you commute together is the next question. No, we didn't. We did not. You did not. But we were catching up outside. Mm-hmm. We had not seen each other in a long time, but we've known each other over 14 years. Yep. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. Such history. Such in, history. Right. In this duo. Well, let's first delve into your own individual histories. Can you please tell me how you found your way into teaching history? You first, Lisa. Well, I started out um, elementary level, of course, and history's always been a passion for me. I'm, I've always had that brain that was just inquiry-based, asking questions, seeking answers. And um just so happened that I presented at one of Cobb County's um, professional learning events that they had, and Joanne Wood at the time, who is now working in the state level, well, she's retired, um, saw me and she thought, oh my gosh, like, you would be great presenting some of this information to other teachers out there, share some of your knowledge. And that's when it just happened. It just took off. This was over 20 years ago. Wow. So you said this to me when we first talked, history is my jam. You it meant that. Is, I Love it. As it should be. I love it. As it should be, Lisa. <laughs> Rick, did you plan on being a history teacher your whole life? Not at all. Really? Not at all. I was originally going to become an officer in the Air Force. Is that right? Yes. But uh, I've always been a curious person. And uh, the more I realized it, um, that just st- pointed me towards teaching. And, you know, got my got my degree and, uh, and you know, teaching history is what I've been doing since. Since, since that time. Yes. Now, how do you each make history come alive in your classroom, Rick? Well, when I taught middle school, uh, I would regularly uh, wear costumes uh, to class. And these are all, you know, costumes related usually to introduce a particular topic or to introduce a particular unit. Uh, I would dress up as Cecil Rhodes to uh, introduce colonization in Africa. I had a civil, civil defense worker outfit I wore to introduce the Cold War. Uh, and uh, when we're learning about communism, I would dress up as Mao. <laughs> well, that drives the point home. What about in your elementary classroom, Well, Lisa? for me, I use a lot of acting and improv. Yeah. And so the way that I get students engaged is using a lot of acting, um, We'll pull up some plays. We'll actually play the part. I don't dress up, but the students are more than happy to dress up and become engaged. We also use a lot of music. So a lot of what they've learned, we turn into music that's current for today. So at any moment, you could hear 
song blasting from my classroom because the students have changed the lyrics to fit whatever we're learning. And it, it is uh, a relevant song that you've given historical. It's a relevant song. Look yes. at that. That's very Just cool. Just a way to engage and keep them interested in the curriculum and the standards. Who is your favorite historical figure and your favorite Georgia historical figure? I had a hard time picking. And I, I, re- I, I ended up going with thinking about your question. I have to say Harriet Tubman and Sojourner Truth. I know not necessarily Georgia, but I just feel like they are powerful women, right, who were not afraid of change. They were not afraid to take risks. They persevered against all odds. And I just um, they just resonate with me. Uh, They weren't afraid. And we can't talk about Georgia and not mention MLK, Martin Luther King, Dr. Martin Luther King, Um, great greatest civil rights activist of all time, um, along with. You have John Lewis Absolutely. there. Yeah, we can't not talk about them. He's just pivotal to Georgia. And so we can't talk about these people and not mention Dr. Him. King. Dr. King. History is about not being afraid. It's about taking risk and making that noise and calling attention to the issues and the problems that are happening of that time. Yes. The noise that makes social change. Yes. How do you answer that question, Rick? Your favorite historical well, figure? Well, my favorite all-time historical figure would have to be Gandhi. And and not for the reasons that other people appreciate Gandhi. I mean, yes, yes, you know, the you know, the his his work on civil rights and and all that. But no, I, I love Gandhi because he was so good at trolling the British. <laughs> you know, a certain amount a certain amount of being effective as a, as a revolutionary is essentially what Gandhi was, involves being able to manipulate the people who are oppressing you. And he did that marvelously. Interesting. Yeah. Now, as for the state of Georgia, there, I spent a lot of time I, thinking about that. And really, I have to come down on the side of Jimmy Carter. Jimmy. Jimmy Carter. You know, uh, even though he wasn't, you know, revered as one of our most effective presidents, uh, his career before and after being president, just he's a role model of being a, a good human being that, he that is. I, I, I have to agree. I think everyone should look up to, to Jimmy. Jimmy Carter. And uh, he, he really represents the American dream in ways, you know, mm-hmm. to come from Georgia and peanut farms to yep. all the way to the White House. And, and that's something that we lionize about our society. And I think that that's a wonderful thing. I met Jimmy Carter on an airplane one time. Uh, very pleasant man. We're all just sitting there and people started cheering and pulling out their phones. It's like, oh, it's a celebrity. And then here comes sweet Jimmy, you know, just shaking. He had to shake everyone's hand. So I don't think we ever took off on that flight because he wanted to get to all of us. (laughs) Such a gentleman. Is there a common misconception about history that you want to set straight right here and right now? Lisa? The common misconception, for me, I think that the misconception is that you typically only hear one side of the story and it's one side of the story that they want people to hear. Mm. So for me, I this is where I tell my students, this is where we have to do our research. This is where we have to do our vetting and digging deep to find the answers. But we want to look at the broad picture. We don't just want to look at one side. And I think that the misconception is it's always only told from one side. Yes. And if it is told from one side, do your work. Yes. Find out what that other side is. Right. It's not some singular voice handed down. Correct. Right. We're living in an age where we have technology. It's not like in my time where I pulled out the encyclopedia. I just dated myself. Um, (laughs) Right. And and we just have to look through the Encyclopedia Britannica. That's not a plug for them, but I'm just saying. Right. Um, 
so we can do the work. Yes. We can do the vetting. We can find the answers and not just hear one side. And get the full story. Full story. Full story. Rick, what's a right. common misconception about history? And by the way, I love Lisa's answer. For that. <laughs> yes, me too. You know, I'd say um, the idea that history is all about stuff that happened a long time ago and isn't relevant today. You know, uh, we're learning more and more that history absolutely affects where we are today. You know, we can't really understand what's going on in the modern world without having the backstory. It's like trying to watch the last five minutes of a movie without watching the rest of a movie. So right. history is absolutely about what's happening today. History is not about a bunch of dead people. Exactly. Okay? You know, I mean, Ruby Bridges is alive and on Instagram. Right. That's true. That's true. That's true. I will admit as a student, I was always pretty reticent about history class. But the more mature I get as I continue to age as gracefully as I can, I think about how often I revert to a former pattern to do the next thing. Like in a production, I will always say to myself, well, what did we do the last time? What worked? What didn't work? Aren't I going back to the history of that experience? Yep. So I think, I think we all kind of have to, we have to see it a little differently with appreciation uh, and that really transforms the experience. Let's talk about primary sources. I know that that's the, really the thrust of our conversation today. Let's start simple. What is the significance of primary sources? Well, you know, primary sources, um, and, and by the way, for those uh, who don't know, primary sources are actual documents, actual artifacts, actual images from a particular time period or a particular historical event or historical person. Um, and to me, the most important thing about primary sources is students have to learn how to interpret them. You know, they're not they're not being given to them with an explanation of what it is. Right. They have the source and they have to figure out now with the with the guidance of their teachers, of course. How do I interpret the significance of this? How do I evaluate this? How do I extract meaning from this? And that is a very important skill in our society. That's a skill about how we deal with information. And um, and even, you know, and obviously I'm teaching high school now, but even with the young kids, we have to get them learning this. Because uh, otherwise, how do they become good citizens in a democracy if they cannot process this information? Interpret. And, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and there's a lot of skills involved. Now, now my, my high schoolers, you know, my 12th grade international baccalaureate students, um, there's a special process that they learn to handle primary sources. Uh, they, we call it OPCVL, by the way. Oh, my. Um, they have, that's right. For each, each source that they look at, they are having to process and analyze the, the origin of that source, the purpose of that source, the content of that source, and then evaluate uh, based on those things, you know, um, what are the values mm. of this source and what are the limitations of this source. Love that. And, and that's, a set, that's a set of skills that we can all use. OPCVL. You changed my life today, Rick. I really like that OPCVL. I really like that because even on the elementary level, I find that we're still doing the same things, right? Um, primary sources give um, my little learners a sense of history because let's face it they don't see much past their world True. past their soccer practice you know their dance classes right and so I think that primary sources help them to form connections that are critical to learning um, students are able to make inferences they're able to make generalizations synthesize information ask questions and asking questions is the critical piece to learning Children aren't going to learn if they're not going to ask questions. Yes. So that stimulating that, you know, part of their brain where they're wanting to know more, that inquiry part, um, asking questions, it helps to synthesize all of the information. And um, by using primary source 
by primary sources, it helps to cover that information processing skills that we see from kindergarten through 12th grade across the board for the DOE standards. So it's very important that you tie in those primary sources to get those juices flowing so that students are able to ask questions and build that critical thinking. And that memory of the event Correct. sticks with them, right? Yeah. What, are, what are a few primary sources you like to engage with your students? I, I will say picture books. I'm going to say that it's not necessarily a primary source, but in addition to using, for instance, I wrote a lesson, um, The Green Book, um, that talked about, um, if you're not familiar with the Green the Green Book, it was a book that was create, uh, created in 1936 um, that gave uh, African-American drivers uh, safe places that they could stop um, in segregated con uh, places, wow. right? So, you know, here is a list of hotels that you could stop at to get rest overnight. You won't have to worry about being African-American because you'll be able to get a room. Right. That sort of thing. And so, like, I know for that lesson, I pulled up the actual green book on my um, my board and students could not believe it. Yeah. But not in addition to using those primary sources. I do love picture books. Picture books for the younger students is a nice way to tie them in and get them engaged in the lesson. Most often teachers will use a picture book to uh, get their hook to hook their lesson. So I always try to encourage teachers, in addition to primary sources, utilize those picture books because that's just as important when your audience is younger. Right. You can see that instruction really click in with mm -hmm. the kid once they see the image, right? It's kind of like that yeah. aha moment happens in their eyes. What primary sources are you using, Rick? Well, you know, uh, obviously we use, we use a lot of primary source documents and images, but my favorites are when we can actually put an artifact in a kid's hand. Oh. You know, um, when we when I do uh, my an introduction to the Cold War, uh, for example, um, before we talk about anything about the actual topic, I'll split the kids up into groups and and hand out some some artifacts. I'll give one group uh, a civil defense worker helmet, uh, a Geiger counter to another group, uh, a piece of the Berlin Wall to another group, um, perhaps a a diagram uh, from a government document of the nuclear triad. And um, by, by them having, and I'll, I'll prompt them, well, try to figure out what you have and come up with some questions about this. And by, by having them uh, manipulate these, you know, with partners, they come up with a lot of really good questions. And as they have some time to, to take a look at this, um, at this source that they have, that this artifact, they come up with a bunch of questions about that. And then we then discuss, have them share share out almost like show and tell right but share out what they have with the rest of the class and more importantly share out the questions that they've come up with so that we can sort of put together a little bit of a story of what it is that they're looking at that sounds really fun and that may be your answer to the next question rick what is one of your best lessons using primary sources is that your favorite that would be my favorite <laughs> lesson right that's there. your favorite lesson what's yours lisa mine was the green book the green book i pull that up and i put that green book on the the board and and, and it's so interesting because I, a lot of the times when I'm, you know, delivering my information to students, I don't tell them all the time what it is they're learning. So here I am putting this green book. I, you know, I use the primary sources um, of the green books. There are multiple ones of them. And I just tell the students, wow, look at this book. What do you notice here? You know, I use a lot of see, think and wonder, especially with the younger students, because that's a way to just get them engaged and get them excited about what they're going to learn. So I put the, bo the book on the board and I'm like, what do you see? see here and they're like oh I see 
it looks like a you know phone book. We talked about phone books because this generation knows Does nothing of know a phone, book. phone <laughs> book. Just so you know, I have a whole case of antique things in my classroom, and I take those things out in the beginning of the year, depending on the grade level I have, and I'll say, I want you to go around with your clipboard and your paper and tell me what these objects are. Potato masher was a back massager. You know, it's things like that. No clue. No clue. I should probably use mine that way because I don't think I've been using my potato masher I was like, well, it would be a good back scratcher. But um, just to get them, um, you know, with the green book, I put that up there and then we just have conversations. How important are field trips to your teaching, Rick? Well, you know, field trips are a great, uh, you know, for my, my subject area is, is mainly, you know, world, world studies things. But um, field trips are a great way of, uh, of, of really providing extensions for them and, and mainly for inspiring and visualizing uh, the history. That's what, that's what field trips really do for us. Content-wise, not as much, but just the, the inspiration. I agree. Um, and also field trips um, allow us to experience Right. Especially virtual. Yes. Experience it without leaving the comfort of your classroom. Yes. Um, It's cheaper. Yeah. Especially if you're in a Title I school. Right. The cost is cheaper. Why don't we look now specifically at the benefits of virtual field trips? How are they helpful to you guys? Right. So for me, virtual field trips allow the students to enjoy the benefits of you know things that are things that are out there for them to see without leaving the comfort of their classroom. Another option that teachers have as well is when you focus on Martin Luther King, um, there's the MLK Center, and it's actually virtual. You're able to go on site and and look at the house that he grew up in, uh, tour through his church. Now, I I wouldn't say it's quite virtual, but you have the picture there, and then there's an explanation of what these resources or places are. Um, And like I said, if if you are a Title I school, it's inexpensive, right? and we can take time, you know, we can take time and explore. We can take time and have those conversations about the primary sources that we're looking at. So it's so important. It also helps to tie in and uh, kind of wrap that standard in a box and make that pretty. It completes the package. Yeah. Rick? Yeah, and I agree with the time part here. You know, when... Um, an in-person field trip involves all day and transportation and we're wrangling people in and out of a fast food place for lunch and all of this for what ends up usually being about a two-hour span of time when they're actually learning something. With virtual field trips, um, it is so much more convenient. So convenient because you know you can do everything you want in that field trip in one class period very often. And sometimes, depending on how you've structured it, you can dip in and out of multiple virtual field trips as part of the same lesson. That's incredible. And this way, this way you can, uh, it's much easier to tie it into your content standards because you can, you can tailor them much more specifically. And, um, and also because you are not committed to what time we have to get on this bus to leave here, um, we can we can pivot if we need to. If a teachable moment comes up in class, we can we can pivot. We can spend extra time on this one part of this uh, virtual field trip on this one thing, um, and the the focus is that much uh, the focus is that much better for the students as right. well. It's, it's much richer learning. And with the pandemic, I know that probably put things on hold for a while. Where are physical field trips in your district right now? We're back in the swing of things. Yeah, we're pretty much back to normal yeah. on the on the physical field trips. Yeah, but, we are. But one of the cool things about the pandemic is because of the pandemic, a lot of sites, you know, created virtual options. So a lot of new virtual uh, opportunities came up because of the pandemic. 
And how do teachers go about setting up a virtual field trip? For me, as a teacher, first of all, I would vet that website to see what it is I'm looking for in terms of the standards and because knowing your standards, of course, is important. You want to begin with that end in mind. What is it that you want students to walk away knowing? Uh, what do you want the learning of the focus of learning to be? Um, when I look at virtual field trips, I always look for images, animations, simulations, audio, and video. The full experience of a field trip. Um, so we look for those things, uh, and it caters to all of the senses, and it's a nice way to engage the students. And, and to add to that, there's a lot of, uh, the term virtual field trip is a very broad term, and uh, there are a lot of offerings that are offered as a virtual field trip that might just be a fancy website. Okay. You know, some of them are maybe a fancy website, a, a fancier, you know, the, the more sophisticated ones might be, you know, a ride along uh, on, a, on video as somebody else tours that particular location. Um, but a lot of places do offer fully interactive produced, produced virtual, virtual trips where they trips. can, where the student gets to choose where they go. The student wow. is navigating their way through with or without VR goggles, by the way, that's really with cool. or without VR goggles. Um, and by the way, related to that, I would, I would also mention that, um, my first step would be to involve my school's media specialists. The media specialists, uh, know a lot about virtual field trips. Absolutely. Go to the folks who, who know the technology. Um, and like, uh, like Lisa, definitely preview, preview the, preview first, the site, vet it, sure. but also, also preview the field trip using the technology that the students will be using. Good point. So yes. using the same devices that the students will be using and the same user accounts that the students will be using in, in some places, you know, the teacher, teacher's user account may have more access than a student's user account. And that might make a difference on in a their particular, experience. Yes, absolutely. Well, where do you go? Where are these platforms? And tell me some of the places you've been virtually. Okay. Well, um, I, I, I have to plug this one. You know, a couple years ago, um, my eighth graders had uh, GPB's mobile VR lab come out for a civil rights history yeah. lesson. And that was a fantastic lesson. And this is a lab with, with the full virtual reality goggles. I believe it's an Oculus, Oculus system yeah. there. And, um, and it, was, they, it was really cool. It was really cool. Um, I, it, was, it was just so neat um, as the teacher just to watch my students with these VR glasses going <laughs> on, looking and panning and tilting their heads, you know. Uh, um, uh, by the way, if you're using VR, it's helpful if the kids are in swivel chairs, <laughs> just, just, so, just so you know that. Um, but that one, that one was fantastic. And by the way, and, and, and a nice thing to look out for on these is an option to, uh, for some students who don't have VR goggles on, if somebody isn't able to do it with the goggles for whatever reason, if they can do it on just on a regular screen, uh, that works well. And, and this one, uh, GPB's lab was, uh, was fantastic for that. Um, I also loved uh, Google Expeditions. Now they've, uh, they've changed a little bit on that, I don't know if you're able to make new ones now. I think they call it the Google Arts and Culture app, but they, they have a fantastic um, thing where essentially it's using the Google Street View technology, but with a much fancier, fancier views. Um, we, my seventh graders, we got to do um, a VR tour of, uh, of the Forbidden City at Tiananmen Square in wow. China. Especially, by the way, if you're doing geography or science, a lot of these you can get out into nature with some of these. Like uh, we got to see a national park in Kenya this way. So just uh, just some fantastic. Google, fan GPB's resources. What do yep. you use, Lisa? And also DOE has some excellent resources, too. Don't forget that 
uh, website as well. But I know that um, throughout the years, and I kind of remember a few of the, the um, places we visited virtually, for instance, the um, George Washington Carver Museum, that covers your first grade standards. So uh, for teachers that are teaching first grade, listening to this, you've got the George Washington Carver Museum. You get a chance to tour the Jessup wagon and kind of go through some of his learning labs. Um, the Jimmy Carter Museum, second grade standard. The Booth Museum, third grade standard, focuses on um, American Indians. The History Center, fourth grade standard. Um, the Holocaust Museum at Kennesaw State, fifth grade standard. So all of these places offer, there's a plethora of, of information that's out there. And it's not that as teachers, we don't want to utilize these things. We forget. Mm -hmm. You just needed this reminder you from need Lisa this reminder. and Rick. That's and right. Thank you for that. You're welcome. And let's conclude, please, with some of your favorite techniques or teaching tips for your history classrooms. What would you like to offer teachers today? Often, and I'm just on a serious note here, I've, I've presented nationally. And one thing that I often hear from teachers is they are afraid to cover the material. They are afraid to read the picture books that go like, for instance, the Green Book or the Youngest Marcher. I'm, I'm just thinking of some picture books in my head that go with, you know, uh, situations that have occurred throughout history. And I always tell teachers, why are you afraid? When you start putting your information and your personal beliefs in the books, that's when it becomes a problem. Ah. Read the material that the author wrote. There should be no fear if you are reading what's in front of you. When you start adding your opinion and what you think, that's when it becomes a problem. So be mindful of that and don't be afraid. These kids are looking up to you. You can cover this material. Just read what's there. Don't add your personal insight into it. Yeah, that's right. You really stick to empowering. the facts. Yeah. There's nothing that can be said. Stick to the facts. Yeah. I like that, Lisa. What do you have, Rick? I'd say encouraging students to ask the questions. Ask the questions. You know, that that is um, too often teaching can be a situation where students want to just sit back and be just consumers. Mm -hmm. Okay. Teach them to ask the questions and encourage them to ask the questions. And they'll be, you know, you'll be uh, surprised at the answers that they come up with if you let them ask the questions. Another thing you mentioned earlier that I thought was very interesting for history classroom was just the, the pairing up part of it. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, whenever you can. And, and this is, you know, you know we, 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 we sometimes call that, you know, collaborative learning and things like that. But, you know, <laughs> it, we don't we don't have to do anything fancy with it. Whenever you have a chance to have students um, pair off. Uh, in order to, you know, compare, compare their impressions of something, compare their questions. You know, when when students are working together in pairs, they're more likely to ask questions of each other uh, and less likely you know, when, when, when it's a whole class discussion. You know, a lot of students will just kind of, you know, shut down and. Right. And, and but, but when they are but when they're working with partners. You know, that gives them, a, that, give, that well, number one, they're more comfortable asking partner a question, but they're also more comfortable sharing stuff with each other. And that can build. That can build when they, they oh, you know, isn't this interesting here? And oh, yeah, I thought that. And, and that can that can really build. And that's one of the things that can make uh, education exciting. Pair to compare. I like that. There you go. That's a T-shirt. Run off with that, Pair guys. Thank you so much for being here today. It was Rick wonderful. And Lisa. Thank you Great for having You guys are fascinating Georgia teacher historical figures. That's what I'm going to call you. I love that. I hope that's okay. I've arrived. You have. <laughs> <laughs> I leave you with this for our listeners. 
Let one historical fact echo in the halls of history year after year, and that's that you're a great teacher. We're back next week with more classroom conversations, and we like when that fact repeats itself. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Funding for Classroom Conversations is made possible through the School Climate Transformation Grant.